Welcome to Eastern Carolina Farming. Hello, farmers and friends. I'm Dan Miller. Last week was a bit of a reboot. Vendors getting back online, folks getting back in place. It was a good week for cleanup, whether it be your office, your mobile office, your shop, or mowing the hedgerows. Coming up in just a second, we'll hook up with our Pink Hill Studios and get up with Jeff Turner, COO of Murphy Family Ventures, and my co-host. On today's show, we'll talk with Dr. Sandy Stewart, Assistant Commissioner of Agriculture at the State of North Carolina. The topic of conversation is North Carolina and the world. Like a book from a dozen years ago, The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman, we are ever more affected by world events, transportation, weather, and obviously viruses. Our program today is sponsored by Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Good Monday, Jeff. Hey, good Monday to you, Dan. I hope you're well and looking forward to a new year. I am. I I wondered if you were hit with any of North Carolina's reliable power system rolling blackouts. Actually, we were pretty fortunate in our part of the world, but uh, obviously we don't have farms in the Charlotte area, the greater Charlotte area, and along the coast. I think they had some of the same problems, but uh, we were fortunate, uh, with the exception of some of the the wind damage uh, prior to Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but other than that, we turned out pretty well. But I got to tell you, it's a challenge. It's a, another new challenge for farmers, especially livestock and poultry farmers, to have to worry about an alternative power source sitting there because we decided to turn the lights off. Cost of loss of inventory uh, at a retail level, at a farming level, has made it now that you have to have standby generation. Well, you know, a lot of these buildings... Poultry buildings especially are totally enclosed, ventilated by fan. You can't just simply drop the curtains or open up the doors when it's 14 degrees and a wind chill of five below to make sure they, that they got air. Even if they don't have water and, and something to eat, they got to have air. So again, another challenge that I don't think has been thought totally through and shutting down one of these buildings, you can't turn them off for three or four hours. It's a continuous continuous need a longtime server for on the agriculture committee chairman debbie stabenow democrat from michigan that says she's not going to run for re-election this will be her last farm bill you know jeff as i get older people who were born in 1950 and after are retiring from government service it seems like they're not that old to me but they're not that old but it's time for a lot of them to retire <laughs> if you miss <laughs> As of the first of the year, the USDA has mandated that beef and dairy cattle, as well as bison moving across interstate lines, have RFID ear tags. Metal tags are not acceptable anymore. They've got to be retagged with RFI tags. Feeder cattle and animals moving directly to slaughter, not subject to the requirements. Uh, near-field communication tags have been a thing for a long time. I think most all operations are doing the, the rubber tag, if you will, with the ID in it, and so I don't think it's a big deal. Of course, it's stand to be corrected, but I don't think it's a big issue. Price per tag has come down to the point where it's entirely feasible, and the amount of tracking you can do is so much better. My guess is the vast majority of people have already gone with the newer type technology anyway. Environmental Protection Agency and the Army Corps of Engineers have upheld their promise to release a final Waters of the U.S. rule by the end of 2022. The final rule goes back to the pre-2015 WOTUS framework with a few tweaks. One of the tweaks includes prior converted croplands. Wetlands converted to croplands prior to 1985 are excluded. Other exclusions move within the rule. 
ditches, irrigated croplands, and artificial ponds for watering livestock. Final rules expected to come out around March 1st. And for those who are not familiar with WOTUS, it establishes limits that draws boundaries on the waters subject to federal protection. Waters that are subject to the Clean Water Act, traditional navigable rivers, terrestrial seas, interstate waters, and the picky part, which is upstream water resources that significantly affect those waters. The Clean Water Act prohibits the discharge of pollutants into navigable waters unless otherwise authorized under the Act. Navigable waters are defined as waters of the U.S. So back in the 1930s and 1970s, when the Clean Water Act was established and then refined, they used the term waters of the United States. But there was no definition. And that has been kicked around almost with every election cycle. Every time it gets kicked around, it gets changed. It's really hard to operate in an environment that's constantly changing. There are some who would like to say if there's a mud puddle on your property, you, you know, it's protected. And I don't know if you recall Kika de la Garza. Yeah. That's a name that's not been used. That, that guy was in Congress back when I was in my 20s. It, it's, so I know that's how long the battle been going on because I, I was with a group who met with him, and he said if you could drive a tractor through it, any time over a 12-month period, as far as he was concerned, it was your property to do what you want to do. Which makes reasonable sense. Does to me. I think one of the biggest objections about all this is, is the fact that there's a case in front of the Supreme Court which could change everything that the EPA has just worked on for the last several months anyway. So why bother? Why not wait? And I agree. Why not wait? And farmers have to be allowed to do what they need to do on their land. They're they're closer to the land than anyone else. They depend on the land for their earning capacity. And and so there ought to be a special carve out for agriculture, period, because that helps everybody on the planet. And the choir sang amen. Sandy Stewart, Ph.D., Assistant Commissioner of Agriculture, joins Jeff and I coming up next on Eastern Carolina Farming. Thanks in part to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, financing rural North Carolina for generations. Lending solutions for farms, land, homes, personalized for you. Ag Carolina Farm Credit, giving you room to grow. Good morning, Sandy. How are you? I'm doing well. I hope you are. Couldn't be better. Jeff Turner and myself, Dan Miller, joined by Sandy Stewart, Ph.D., the Assistant Commissioner for Agriculture in the State of North Carolina. Sandy's a nickname, right? My given name is Alexander, Alexander McLeod Stewart, and there's a lot of Highland Scott blood flowing in me. And, and what I've been told is that Sandy is a nickname for Alexander over in Scotland. And so my family's had a lot of Alexander through the generations, and, and most all of them were called Sandy. And, and that may be the easier of the two questions. The next one is, what's your title? And more importantly, what is your scope at the Department of Agriculture? Because you are key in so many areas. Well, well, I, I serve as Assistant Commissioner of Agriculture and work directly for Commissioner Steve Troxler. And, and my, my part of NCDA, for the most part, is the agricultural services that we provide. And, and that's the divisions like marketing and agronomics, soil and water conservation, research stations, plant industry, and food distribution. And, and so that's that's sort of the, the main. And then there's a little part of the job description that says other duties is assigned. And I, and I catch a lot of that part of it as well. So it's, a, it's something I do to support the NCDA and North Carolina agriculture work directly for the commissioner. 
the department's done a lot of work on tobacco and sweet potatoes. So what are the hot button topics for export of North Carolina crops? In North Carolina, we um, we exported in 2021 about $3 billion worth of product out of North Carolina. And that kind of reflects the diversity of North Carolina agriculture pretty well. A lot of protein is exported out of North Carolina with pork and poultry. Tobacco is still a significant export market for us. Lumber products, that's the, the wood products and wood pellets and that kind of thing has emerged, I guess, in the last five to ten years to play a major role. A lot of that goes to the European Union. Sweet potatoes, we supply about two-thirds of the sweet potatoes that are consumed in the European Union come from North Carolina. And then you've got the major commodities of cotton, soybeans. Uh, We export some corn. And then you get into some minor things that you wouldn't actually expect. We do export some Christmas trees. Um, About one out of every four Christmas trees grown in the United States is grown here in North Carolina. And, And there are some export markets for Christmas trees into Central America, and a few go to Asia, places like that, and, and then some things people wouldn't even think about, like muscadine grapes. Um, we have a little bit of a market in Canada. We have a diverse agriculture in North Carolina, and, and not all of it is exported, but our exports kind of reflect that diversity in terms of the size and the scope, and we, we export something to just about every continent on the globe. We've heard before that muscadine grapes are a potential follow-up to how successful North Carolina has been with sweet potatoes. It's a, it's a market that we think can grow a lot. There's a there's a lot of acceptance of muscadine grapes with with Asian communities, and when you look at Canada, in the Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver areas, some of our muscadines in small volumes actually go to Korea and Japan. That's for the fresh grapes. Now, I, I think the part that could really grow for us is the extracts and the juice and that kind of thing. Because when you've got a product like that that's a, it's a seasonal product, one of the keys to growing those exports over time is to make, to basically create sort of year-round demand. So you're not kind of getting back in there with a seasonal perishable product. You know, hopefully over time we can develop the acceptance of that in those ethnic markets and maybe beyond that. And then the juice and the extract from the seeds and things like that could be something that's pretty big in a lot of counties in North Carolina. How much does geographic location and being here on the East Coast as opposed to the West Coast help us out with ag exports for North Carolina? Geographically, we're in a pretty good spot because we're right here on the eastern seaboard. The three major ports that we export out of are Norfolk, Wilmington, and Charleston. We do have some product that goes out of Savannah. And when you look at those four ports, you can reach just about anywhere in the world. And I'll give you an example of how that is sort of an advantage for us is with soybeans, with containerized soybeans. So if we load a soybean into a container that's grown in North Carolina, it can get to the port relatively quickly, and, and by the time it reaches its export destination, that bean has been handled very few times compared to a bean that's, that's grown in the Midwest. And so we've got some quality advantages in that regard in that you don't have as, as much splits and just damage just from being handled and loaded multiple times. One of the keys to growing our exports is that intermodal sort of transportation from inland in North Carolina, whether it's in in Charlotte, where you've got daily rail service to Wilmington, as we build the intermodal deal in Rocky Mount, the quicker you can get it from an inland destination to the port, that adds value all along to the chain there. Sandy, we talk a lot 
about diversification. Do you see any opportunities out there that seem to be kind of untouched or are things that maybe we ought to put a little time in to try to figure out how to participate or a new product that could be exported? The answer to that has a lot of different wrinkles in it. A lot of what we grow in North Carolina has has a pretty high labor demand. Tobacco, sweet potatoes, some of our vegetable crops, adding crops and adding just agricultural enterprises that fit into that labor piece with H-2A labor that's able to work in sweet potatoes and tobacco. Those seasons sort of sort of make it where the same crew can work work those two crops. And then once that season's over with, a lot of that H-2A labor goes to the western part of the state to work with Christmas trees. That's a symbiotic relationship with those commodities. As we grow North Carolina agriculture into uh, probably some fresh fruit and vegetable arena, and I say that because of forces that are at play outside of North Carolina, the water situation, for example, the water availability out in, in the San Joaquin Valley in California, inevitably that fruit and vegetable production is going to shift somewhere. In North Carolina, I think because of our farm size, our experience with hand labor crops already and in in, in the fruit vegetable industry that's already established in this state, I think that's a real area for growth for us. And that goes back to the geography question when you're located within a day's drive of probably well over half the U.S. population, about halfway between New York and population in Florida, access to the Atlantic Ocean with our ports. Uh, North Carolina is a natural fit for a lot of that fruit and vegetable production to, to move out of areas where, um, where, where water and other issues are going to constrain production in the future. I like that. Jeff and I are talking with Dr. Sandy Stewart. He is the Assistant Commissioner of Agriculture in North Carolina. We'll be back with more on Eastern Carolina Farming in just a moment. This is Eastern Carolina Farming on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Dan Miller along with my co-host Jeff Turner joined by Sandy Stewart, the Assistant Commissioner for Agriculture in the state of North Carolina. We are in a great spot on the East Coast. Is our location to East Coast ports really significant in lowering the cost of shipping for us? One thing I've learned over time when you look at agricultural exports coming out of North Carolina, a lot of it becomes dependent on how valuable the container is when it gets to that destination. Vietnam example, Vietnam produces a lot of products that need to be shipped to the United States, and they got to have a container to ship it to the United States. And so that backhaul, if you will, for the container back to Vietnam has created a market for containerized soybeans. It, make it made it economical for us to take beans to the port in Wilmington, load them into a container. They go through the Panama Canal and end up eventually in Vietnam but the value of the container drives that, and a lot of people lose sight of that because it's those containers, they, they don't go empty. So as we look forward to what's going on in the European Union and livestock and that sort of thing, knowing what some of those EU standards are for growing pigs, for instance, uh, we don't qualify. We, we don't have toys inside the finishing barn for a pig to play with, which is required under the EU standard. So are those folks just going to go hungry again? Well, European Union food policy, um, I used to think it was a slow train wreck, and I'm beginning to think that it's probably a, a fast train wreck that, that you can watch because of those standards that you talked about. The European Union policy towards agriculture 
has more to do with their views on climate change and stuff like that than it does actually feeding people. They have historically gotten a lot of grain out of the Ukraine, and that's not been as available as it has been in the past. But at the same time, it seems like they've kind of ignored that, as well as the lessons that they learned after World War II about feeding their own population. Will they starve? Well, I guess that depends on how much money they've got, because they have, through their own policy making, they have made it very expensive for Europeans to uh, to purchase food now, and it's just going to get more expensive in the future. And one of the things that they have in the European Union, they've gone down the road of, of adding a greenhouse gas emission tax, if you want to call it that, on exports or imports into the European Union. Right now, that's not affecting agriculture too much because it's on things like aluminum and... Uh, Cement and uh, also uh, fertilizer. Yeah, that's right, and, and the fertilizer part of it. So it, food security is national security, and that's that's for us and that's for any country in the world. And it just seems like the European Union has decided that they think they can source food from the rest of the world moving forward, and they can, but it's going to be very expensive for them. And the whole GMO thing with the European Union is, is an issue, right? It's, it's like everything else. As far as I can see with, with the European Union, they, they want to dictate a bunch of rules. It's kind of like California. Uh, they want everyone to live and thrive the way they want us to live and thrive. Genetic modification started eons ago, whether it was selective breeding or whatever. Again, Mexico's got the same problem with, with yeah. corn right now. They're, they're saying no, no GMOs. Well, they're certainly not eating the same kind of corn that the Aztecs raised, are they? <laughs> the problem I think that we've had with the European Union for quite a while is we see those standards applied to us, but not necessarily to the rest of the world. And we, we want a level playing field when it comes to trade. Our sweet potato farms in North Carolina, they're all GAP certified. We've got a very structured labor program with H2A labor. We produce the most traceable high-quality sweet potatoes in the world, and we've had a great export market in Europe for quite some time. However, we see European importers, they say that that's what they want as soon as you get a cheaper sweet potato grown in in Central or South America or Egypt or North Africa or somewhere like that. Price becomes a factor. We'd like to see not just free trade. We want to see a fair level playing field around the world. Dr. Sandy Stewart is the Assistant Commissioner of Agriculture in the state of North Carolina. Fascinating discussion, and I hate to curb it there, but but we have to. Coming up in just a moment, I'll have a quick look at last week's market recap. This is Talk 96.3 and 103.7's Eastern Carolina Farming. I'm Dan Miller. Get your hands on the January issue of Farmers Connection Magazine. It's only out for a little while longer than the special edition Southern Farm Show version will be out. Farmers Connection is a newsprint magazine with listings of new and used inventory at local dealers like Nash Equipment in Burgaw, Carolina Custom Equipment in Wilson, Stevens Truck and Tractor in Goldsboro, and Modern Tractor in Richlands, just to name a few. Grab a copy of the January Farmers Connection at almost any independent farm equipment dealer in North and South Carolina and Southern Virginia. I look forward to seeing the man at the helm of the Farmers Connection, B.G. Mitchell, at the Southern Farm Show, February 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. We'll talk with David Zimmerman from the Farm Show coming up next week. Now we'll look at market prices, and we don't have many prices to compare against as the state information not available the prior week. 
Number two, yellow shelled corn. No price comparison, of course. Prices range mostly six ninety-eight to seven eighty at the feed mills, seven oh three to seven fifty-five at the elevators through Thursday, January the sixth. Number one, yellow soybeans were fifteen dollars to fifteen forty-two at the processors, mostly fourteen sixty-one to fourteen ninety-two at the elevators. Number two, red winter wheat ranged six forty-five to seven fifty-five at the elevators. Soybean meal FOB at processing plants was 522.70 to 525.10 for 46.5 to 48% protein. New crop prices quoted for harvest delivery. Corn was 601 to 721 and wheat range 633 to 755. Eastern Carolina 22 season sweet potatoes, 40 pound cartons, orange types, U.S. number ones, 14 to 17 dollars. U.S. number one petites, 10 dollars to 13, some as high as 15 dollars. Livestock prices all per hundred weight going back and comparing against the week prior to Christmas. February lean hogs were off five dollars and fifty cents to eighty twenty seven. April lean hogs were off three dollars and seven cents to eighty nine sixty five. January feeder cattle off a buck oh seven to one eighty two seventy. March feeder cattle up ninety five cents to one eighty five sixty five. February live cattle up a dollar twenty two to one fifty six seventy seven. And April live cattle up ninety seven cents to close at one sixty sixty seven. That's this week's Eastern Carolina Farming. If you miss a show, play the podcast on demand at ecfarming.com. There you'll find links to our sponsors, Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Eastern Carolina Farming is a production of Interbanks Media. Support the program. Tell your vendor to call Hank Hinton at 252-355-1037. For Jeff Turner and myself, Dan Miller, have a great week.